Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Gurinder Chadha's new comedic drama, Blinded by the Light. The film tells the story of Javed, a British teen of Pakistani descent, growing up in 1987 England amidst the racial and economic turmoil of the times of the Thatcher era. He writes poetry to escape the intolerance of his hometown and the inflexibility of his traditional father. But when a classmate introduces him to the music of the boss, his world is turned upside down. In addition to Blinded by the Light, Ms. Chada's credits include the feature films Baji on the Beach, Bend It Like Beckham, Bride and Prejudice, It's a Wonderful Afterlife, and Angus Thongs and Perfect Snogging, and episodes of the series Beecham House. Following a recent screening of the film at the Harmony Gold Theater in Los Angeles, Ms. Chada spoke with director Catherine Hardwick about filming Blinded by the Light. During their conversation, she discusses how her own interest in Springsteen's music as a teenager shaped the film, when she met and convinced Springsteen to allow her to make the film, and how choreographing the lyrics into Javed's journey in a meaningful way was crucial to get just right. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> well, I just saw it for the first time and I just thought it was a blast. Did you guys like it? <laughs> Thank you. It was so much fun and you know and so uh, I just wondered like how she found this book and how the whole thing got started and so um I'll give you the quick answer. Okay. So um you know what it's like when you've been doing press for four weeks and you say the same thing over and over again um so um i when i was at school uh, i had a saturday job working in harrods in the record department and i was a big fan of soul music i used to collect stacks and uh, tamla and that kind of music and then one day this english chap with long hair and a beard said have you ever heard of bruce springsteen uh, and I said, yes, but I'm not a rocker. Um, and I had him down as a heavy metal kind of rock person. Um, and he said, no, no, I think you, you should listen to him. And he pulled out the album Born to Run. And I was like taken aback by the album because I'm like, wow, here's a white dude and a black dude being very pally with each other, being really friendly. And at that time in England, talking about late 70s, 80s, um, that was, was before the specials anyway. <laughs> um, it wasn't, uh, you know, it was very rare to see that. And the only other time I'd seen a black, a band with black members in it and white was Casey and the Sunshine Band. So that was my reference. So uh, when I saw this, I was like, oh, this is very weird. But it was the intimacy with which Clarence Clemens and Bruce um, Springsteen were sort of holding each other. And then uh, I took the album home and listened to it. And it was the saxophone that then led me to the guitar, that then led me to Bruce's words. And, and I found that he was singing about ordinary people who were trying to 
get out from where they were from and try to make a better life for themselves. And all his songs were a little bit melancholy, but they had a lot of energy. And, and it felt like he was singing songs about people like my mum and dad. You know, like people who were trying to get by, you know, um, and um, and struggling now and again. And then that was that. I, I just, I then went to see him live in England in 1985. Uh, and that was the first time I'd seen him live. And if anyone's ever seen him live, it's like a religious experience. <laughs> and, and it was for me, I was like blown away. It was Wembley Arena. And and then I had the River uh, album playing on a loop, and I just was really into him. And then I saw this article in a newspaper um, by a Pakistani journalist called Safraz Manzoor, and in it there was a photo. It was the photo that got me. The photo was um, he was sort of standing there, and Bruce was behind, and he'd kind of clicked in like an original selfie, clicked, and Bruce was in the back going. Like that, <laughs> and I'm like, oh God, what is this? And um, and so I contacted Safraz, and I'm like, oh my God, I think you and me are the only Asian fans of Springsteen in the United Kingdom, and we thought we were, and we just kept in touch, and and then he said, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna write a memoir of Springsteen, and I said, that's great. <laughs> Uh, I, of course, had made Bend It Like Beckham by then, and I'd also made Bride and Prejudice. And in I found this old interview the other day. Um, um, I, I had done this interview in 2004 for Bride and Prejudice, and in it, one of the questions was, which artist would you most like to work with? And I said, hands down, Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> he has been an idol of mine, you know, from way back. And that's in that in that interview, and so now we're at 2007, and Safra's writing his book, and he sort of secretly hopes that I might see something in it. <laughs> um, a because I just had a hit movie in the Asian community, and B about the Asian community, and B because uh, I was a Springsteen fan, so. Um, so then he gives me the galleys of the book and I'm like, this is, this is a good memoir. I, I know how to turn it into a good film, but we have to stray a little bit away from the memoir. But also, before we do anything without Springsteen, there's no, there's no movie, yeah. there's nothing. And of course, notoriously, he doesn't give his music, as we know. So I didn't think much of it. I didn't think anything was going to happen, to be honest with you. I was like, well, we're never going to be able to get like 19 tracks from Bruce Springsteen for an independent British movie. That's never going to happen. Um, and, and then in 2010, Bruce Springsteen came to London for the premiere of The Promise. And I was invited. It was at the BFI. I was invited. I took Safraz with me as my plus one. And we both stood on either side of the red carpet waiting for him to come by. And the idea was that we, we both had flip cameras at the time, if you remember those. So we had flip cameras on and the idea was as he went past, we'd kind of like <laughs> smile like that and just be in the same frame as, as Bruce Springsteen as he walked past. Um, what actually happened 
was as he came round the corner um, onto the carpet, lots of people were cheering and clapping. And I, I was getting terribly excited and Safraz was absolutely beside himself. Because Safraz has seen him like literally a hundred and odd times as you've seen. But not only seen him in concert, he's hung around hotel rooms and cars and <laughs> hotel lobbies all over Europe, here, everywhere. So he like he's that person that stands outside for like five hours in the rain just to go hey, Bruce, could you sign this? He's that person. So um, so we're both standing there, and then suddenly he spots Safraz. And because Safraz is like a Pakistani with an afro, which is, you know, very rare. Yeah, in a Springsteen gig right at the front. Uh, he spots him and he walks over, and I run over as well. Uh, meanwhile, the flip camera is still going. And, and and everything that happens from now is Bruce's chest because everyone's like this, looking at him. And the camera's down here. And uh, he walks over to Safraz and says, hey man, I read your book. It's really beautiful. And, wow. and we've worked out what happened. Was Safraz sent loads of copies to, uh, <laughs> to um, David Marsh. Dave Marsh, who's written about Bruce, right? And so he sent those copies to him and Dave had given one to Bruce. But we only found that out last week at E Street Radio. Um, so it's taken some of the romance off this story. But anyway, but Bruce came up, he said, I read your book. And Safraz is like, oh my God, how did you get it? Um, <laughs> we know that now. Anyway, he was like, how did you get it? You, know, you took the time to read it. Oh my God, that's amazing, that's amazing. And I'm standing there watching this and I'm going, oh my God, I've got three seconds to make a movie deal with Bruce Springsteen <laughs> right now. Because he's being moved on, he's being pushed on, he's got John Landau behind him, Barbara Carr, you know, all his managers and they're pushing him along. And he's standing here talking to us and we're all going, ugh, like this. And, um, and then Safras sort of finished and I turned to him and I said, very unprofessionally, I have to say. I just went, hi, Bruce. <laughs> hi, Bruce, I'm Gorinda Chadda. I made Pendulum One of those, well, I couldn't even speak. Really, really happy you're here. Really glad you like the book. We need to make a film of it. I want to direct it and, and we can't do it without you. We can't do it without your support. And will you support us? And he went, sounds good. Talk to John. And we're like, ah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it was literally like that. And then John Lando was behind him. Bruce was whisked off going in nutcases over there. So he goes off and then John Lando comes up to us and says, what are you guys talking about? What? What is this? And Safraz had a copy of his book with him and he put it and he gave it to John. And he said, my book, he's read my book. He likes my book. I'm, like, I'm going to chatter. I'm better like Beckham. I'm going to make a film of it, and he likes it. He likes it. So John, at that point, didn't really know what to do. But what I've learned is when Bruce says he likes something, everyone goes, "Oh, well, Bruce liked it. Okay, fine," sort of thing. So Tracy Nurse was there too, who's worked with Bruce for 35 years, uh, who I sort of knew through someone, and I took Tracy's number. And I kept in touch with Tracy. And I said, what does this mean, Tracy? You know, like he, 
he said he liked the he liked the idea, and she said, yeah, he does like the idea. Um, she said, you should go and write the script, and I'm like, uh, what well, with the songs and and she went, yeah, he likes the idea. So it was like that. So basically, that's kind of what happened. We started working on the script. I raised some finance from the BFI. And um, Safraz is a journalist um, who writes very good articles for the papers. But he, he's not a screenplay writer. But he really wanted to have a go. And I said, OK, it's, it is your story, but we do need to move away from it. And it was a very interesting journey of um, getting the script made because he is a writer, but in those situations, it's, as some of you will know, you can't really, when someone doesn't know what they don't know, you can't really express to them what they don't know, because <laughs> they think they know. But, um, so I, I gave him a couple of tutorials on, on Robert McKee's three-act structure, and I, I broke down Bend It Like Beckham into three acts and, and said, okay, this is what we have to do. And then I said, we need to move away from you, basically. Um, I introduced the girlfriend uh, as being quite political and introduced um, quite a lot of stuff, really. The tenderness with the mum, um, the gold bangles. Um, Safra's never really spoke to his dad, so we had to create scenes um, you know, where he argues with the dad. So I said to Safra's, we're going to have to dramatise a lot of what you never did. Um, and that was great because Safraz was a great resource, a tremendous resource for all kinds of information, you know. Um, and then, uh, and then I did the thing with the bangles. I did the whole bungara thing, the music, the nightclub, because that was very important to me. Because in 1987, it was when I walked into a nightclub in Leicester Square, and there were 700 kids at two o'clock in the afternoon, all like dancing to bungara music, and I was like, oh my god. <laughs> The future is here, <laughs> uh, but that was imp that whole music scene was very important to me because that's where I got my confidence from my identity as a British Asian. So I, I wanted to put that in there, and I think really the hardest thing for me was sitting down with all the songs and um, breaking them all up so that they were part of the narrative, and I had the lyrics to everything, but I only used what was relative for Javid's journey. And, and so I selected each song you know, in great you know, in forensic detail in terms of that line there works here and that will work there and this is where we need to go to here. And then I would have you know, Javid, Matt, Springsteen. Like, I'd have him as lyrics, yeah, in the, in, in the scripts. And then <clears throat> finally we sent the script off to Bruce and um, actually, before this, what had happened was I, I went off and did a couple of other things. I let Safraz have a go at it, and I needed to let him get it all out of his system. So while I was letting him get on with it, I, I made Viceroy's House, my movie Viceroy's House, and I did the West End stage adaptation of uh, Bend It Like Beckham. So I did that, that, and then... I was. I came back and I was like, okay, what am I going to do now? What film do I want to do next? It was around 2017. And, um, and it was the same sort of time, actually, as Brexit happened in England. And overnight, it was like someone turned a switch on 
once that vote happened and suddenly there was sort of xenophobia everywhere and people felt like they could just come out and start saying nasty, nasty things, racist things, but get on buses in broad daylight and start screaming at elderly black women who'd worked in our hospitals their whole lives. And it was like a real breakdown of society. And then on the buses, some people would go, hey man, hey man, you can't say this, you know. And this, this is a particular video that went viral. And the guy just carried on shouting. And everyone looked very embarrassed and no one knew what to do, whether to get involved or not. And meanwhile, this woman just stood there and just took it, you know. And it was really really upsetting um, and it was London this you know we accept this happens in other parts of the country but this was happening in London and I was very disturbed by this and upset by this and that's that's why I then decided to make Blinded by the Light and I thought I, I have to do something about this and the best thing that I can do is make a movie to show just how awful it was for us growing up in the 80s and make those scenes as visceral as possible, but at the same time show compassion and empathy and hope, which I got in bucket loads from Springsteen's music um, and find a way that also gave us hope moving forward. Um, what I didn't know at that time was just how bad things were gonna get in other parts of the world. Uh, not just Brexit Europe, you know. So it's all very timely, you know, right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the wall was trying to be built at that time of Brexit. There wasn't anything else at that point. It was just all about the wall. But then since then, Charlottesville happened and various things happened. But anyway, I wrote this script, a lot of... Um, with, put everything that I was frustrated about in terms of the racism that was erupting in England and Europe into it, but still wanted to make a film about people that looked like me that wasn't defined by problems and racism, that transcended that into a story of hope, you know. Because we that's our, our life, you know. Yes, we have those struggles, but we also have a lot of love and joy in our lives and often I feel people want me to sort of make those films which are all about struggle and racism and gloomy and and whilst that's an element of our lives we're not defined by it you know and if you're from that background and from that community and if you're bilingual and if you're bicultural or multicultural or part of a diaspora you know you you compartmentalize, you know, so you go, okay, well, okay, well, that person's just abused me, or I've just encountered something weird there. Well, I'm going to go and sit with my friends now and get joyed up again, and then we'll take the piss out of that, and then we'll move on, and, you know, so we deal with these things in a different way to how I think often people who are not um, bilingual or multicultural see that that reality so I didn't want to be defined that's why I sort of wanted to show the struggle but at the same time show uh, show compassion and joy well let's talk about the super joyous parts like you know I just loved um, you know these transcendent moments where the music just burst through I mean that was kind of courageous and fun how did you get the idea to, or how did you decide to do those awesome musical number <laughs> well 
it was always going to ha- it was always going to have a lot of music in it um, because what, well when we finished the script we sent it to Bruce um, because we still hadn't got all the music we'd put it in the script but we still didn't know if we were going to get it yeah. and it all depended on whether he liked the script and and then after a couple of weeks Tracy emailed and said he's read the script and and we were like okay what does he think yeah. does it yeah exactly <laughs> and 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 she said, oh, he says he's all good with this. And I was like, what does that mean? And she said, he says he's all good with it. And I said, does that mean I get all those songs? And how much will they cost? <laughs> and exactly. And she said, he said he's all good with it. You, you should go, go on and make your film. He's all good with it. So I never quite knew, you know, I never quite knew, but I just thought, fuck it, I'm just going to do it. So I just did what I wanted. And oh and everyone was like a little nervous about the cost and everything. But I knew by now that what Bruce, was, what Bruce liked, the political side of what we were doing and the fact that it wasn't about him particularly you know it was trying to use his words to say something else and anyway so um the biggest pressure for me then as a director was trying to take his classic songs like thunder road and and born to run and um and create musical sequences out of them in a way that lived up to his legacy <laughs> because the last thing I wanted was to have millions of Bruce Springsteen fans around the world saying what the fuck has she done what has she done to this great song of Bruce's oh my god and of course Luton you know if you go to Luton it is it's been voted the crappiest place to live in by people from Luton so it's Trying to make that cinematic was not easy, but we. Yeah, where um, you filmed? That's where we filmed. Yeah, it's a small town out in the, you know, twenty-five miles north of London, um, and an industrial and you know quite blue collar. Mm-hmm. And GM had a car plant there called Vauxhall, mm-hmm. where most people worked, and then they just started laying off people. Um, so in some ways, it, it's a little bit like Roger and Me with Flint. You know, Flint, Michigan, it's sort of that kind of world a little bit. Um, anyway, um, I just thought the only way that I can do this is by forgetting that there is this p- big person called Bruce Springsteen. And instead there's this singer-songwriter who's written a few songs for me, for my film. <laughs> yeah, a little thing called Ball to Run, you know. And that I could do what I think is right for Luton and for Javid <laughs> with those songs because otherwise I would have been you know unable to sort of break free of of uh, you know Springsteen basically you know I had to divorce him in order to make the songs work and then I also knew there'd be lots of people watching who weren't Springsteen fans and then I also knew, you know, obviously Safraz was alive and well and had family and friends and there were real people. So I had to make sure their story was told with integrity as well. So I was just balancing all these different things. And, um, and then in the end, I just, I never wanted to make a full on musical because it, the story didn't warrant that. But I, I, I wanted to use the music in the way, like for example, we did with Badlands, 
when uh, when the when those guys take his tape and throw them off the table, you know, there was a dialogue scene there, and I took all the dialogue out and just had have them going to the ones who have a notion, a notion deep inside. So they they learnt. He Jarvid learns from Bruce a sense of confidence and a sense of justice and also love, you know. So that was what we were trying to do. I was trying to really choreograph the lyrics into his journey as not just words on the screen, but emotionally part of his journey. Hence the big, um, the, the, the dancing in the dark and the promised land sequence mm -hmm. with all the sort of projections and everything. Because that, again, the other thing is this is a film about a writer. And uh, so that in itself it's is not very static. cinematic. <laughs> yeah, static, yeah. Although Adaptation is one of my favourite films yeah. about yeah. writing. Um, but, but um, yeah, I had to find a way to make sure that you got the connection between what Springsteen was saying and how it was affecting him at that point in his life. And just that moment of when music or something really blows your mind when you're young and you suddenly go, that's it, that's me, that's my tribe, that's talking to me. And it happens to all of us with something or the other when we just go, oh my God. And then we sit there and listen to the album over and over again and, and sort of start dressing like that person. And <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, they're cutting off yeah. the thing. Um, so I wanted to make sure that, and I, I knew that the film stood and fell on that scene, on, on, the, uh, on the scene where, where you learn about Springsteen. But also Springsteen mumbles a lot, so you don't always understand what he says. So by pulling the words out like that. Sorry, yeah. I have not let you ask me many oh, questions. No, I've just no, gone. You, you, so you wind me up perfect. and I'm... <laughs> <laughs> that um, so, yeah, that was a bold, fun thing to do. That was an incredible yeah. thing to do. That was... And it took a long time to get that right because I kept pushing and pushing and pushing to make it emotional, you know, mm. and not schematic mm. um, by pulling out certain words like help and you know, look in the mirror and living in a dump like this. Mm -hmm. So I was just pulling out the right words um, that would make you, that feel. would feel, Connect. yeah. And the way the words come off and on. Yeah, um, some really great visual things with the big, the scale of some and yeah. Yeah, that was simple. That was just projector, mm -hmm. projecting and wind machines. Mm -hmm. um, with leaves going through them. But it was very effective, actually, um, especially against the building with all the windows and the doors yeah. and everything and the way he was framed. None of it was added in post? It was all... No. Oh, oh no, no, it was all oh, shot. So you really planned it. Yeah, I choreographed it, yeah. yeah. That's the kind of musical side, I suppose. It was choreographed as opposed to dancing being choreographed. Just the words were choreographed. So how did you do that? Did you do it, you know storyboard kind of thing or I chose the words and then projected them and I knew the location where I was going to do it across the garages and mm -hmm. and then I just did it lots of different times mm -hmm. with lots of different angles mm -hmm. and um, and then I had quite a lot of footage but that's what I mean by playing with it in the edit room mm -hmm. to get it just right I did spend a lot of time on that sequence in the edit it's 
awesome. Oh, <laughs> bless you. It. Thank you. And then when I had my director's cut, I thought I should show it to Bruce because he never asked to see it. He literally gave me all his songs. And he never, he just, I mean, it's unbelievable now when you think about it. But he, he didn't ask to see anything. What had happened was I'd gone to see him on Broadway before that and I had wanted to use Jungle Land over that sequence of the racist march mm -hmm. because from the moment I came up with that and the moment I was shooting that, I always heard that saxophone of Clarence Clemens mm -hmm. there because I thought it just was jubilant and sort of subverted the mm -hmm. hate on their faces. Um, and also Jarvid's running to get his tickets. So the saxophone's very euphoric. And so I just thought it was a really good juxtaposition there. And, um, but I needed to cut the song up in order to use it. And everywhere else I hadn't cut any of his songs, but I would need to use the saxophone, the piano and the last verse. So I saw him on Broadway and after the show, this is before we started shooting, he said, uh, you know, how's it going? I went, good. Um, um, but I said, I do need to ask you about Jungle Land because it's my favorite song. And from the from day one, I've always heard Clarence Clemens' um, saxophone over the scene of the racist marching. But I have to cut it up, the song up a bit. And I can't do it without asking for your permission. And he went, I think Clarence would really love that. God. Oh I know, it's like, oh my God, we are not worthy. So he was like, yeah, he said, yeah, Clarence would love that, you should do that. And then as he walked away, I heard him say to Barbara Carr, Barbara said, is that okay? And he went, yeah, I got a good feeling about this movie. So I was like, oh. <laughs> oh my God. And did then, you say, can you send me the stems and everything too? I mean, no. Uh, no, I, couldn't, I didn't quite get the stems, no. <laughs> but what I did do was at the, at the director's cut, I went to New York and I said, I've got to show you this because you might look at what I've done and be horrified. And, you know, because there's these kids running around looting dancing to Born to Run and it's his iconic song, you know. Plus I had those gags in it of... Uh, of, um, you know, when Matt said, when Javid says, someday, man, we're going to find that place. Oh, yeah. gonna, and he says, did you write that? <laughs> I told you lyrics were rubbish. Like, I had sort of those sort of deprecating, yeah. Bruce deprecating gags and in. That's last year. Or in the old, and that's old news and Reagan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reagan. Uh, he, yeah, he's what your dad listens to. All that. Is that Bruce? You know, that's Billy Joel, isn't it? Like, all that. So... Went to New York, sat in a room with him and uh, all the managers, John Lando and Barbara Carr and Tracy. And he said, okay, let's see the movie. I'm going, okay. <laughs> so I did the usual thing. Oh, it looks crap. It's off the avid. Um, sounds not mixed. He went, oh, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> and then uh, I thought, okay, this is it. Either I've got a movie or not. Because he could turn around at that point and go, this is terrible. What was I thinking? Um, anyway, he sat, watched it, watched it very intensely and smiled at a few things. And then at the end of the screening, I sat sort of at, behind him to the side so I could see his crow's feet here. Um, and I could see him smiling a few times and then going like that and like that. Um, and then uh, at the end of the film, there was silence. 
And I figured, okay, well, the managers are not going to say anything until, he's until he speaks. And he's not saying anything. So then I thought, okay, I need to go down, put the lights on, get my tape, get the fuck out of that room and just let him talk to his people. And then one of his people will come and talk to me and say yes or no or something. So that was my plan. And I went down to the front and I turned the lights on and I went to get my DVD player out. Of the, it, was a, it was a crappy DVD as well. <laughs> went to get the DVD player out, uh, DVD out. And I turned around and he walked over to me and then he uh, put his arms around me and he gave me a massive kiss and he said, wow, thank you for looking after me so beautifully. Oh, oh my God. I was like, oh my God. Is he going to give me a heart attack? And, uh, and then he said, don't change a thing. Don't change a thing. It's great. And then we sat down for an hour and we unpicked it, all the things that he really liked about it. I got notes <laughs> from Bruce Nern. <laughs> Not real notes, just praise, I guess. And he, he liked, um, he said, oh, the kid's great. Really like the kid, he goes. Um, and he loved all the other 80s music. He really liked all the other 80s music because it, it gave his music a good context. <laughs> And he really liked that we'd included Tiffany. And because he turned around at that point to John and said, remember that girl? And John goes, I remember that girl. And he goes, we couldn't get arrested. We couldn't get a song in the charts when she was number one, you know. And he was having his own thing about, you know, Tiffany being number one and he couldn't get a song in. And so I'm like, oh, okay, that's, that's interesting. And then um, he he said that he really he thought how I brought the songs to life for today was important to him. That was what he liked was what he'd written in the seventies was was now going through a sixteen year old Pakistani Muslims world and vision through to today, and it's somehow in that journey that what he wrote then was, was so still relevant, relevant yeah. still relevant now. Um, and, and um, yeah, so that was, um, so that was, that was good. And I said to him, what's your favorite bit? And he said, uh, I really like Born to Run, he said. <laughs> oh he liked that God. sequence, he thought it was very cute. So anyway, he came to the premiere. That was nice. So we had a premiere in Asbury Park a few days ago, which I still haven't recovered what? from. Are you serious? Yeah, we. I wanted to do a premiere in Asbury Park at the at the pavilion. We were going to have the after party at the Stone Pony, but uh, but there was rain and storms and stuff, so we had to have it in the convention centre. But he came. Uh, we sat in a cinema. He came with his wife and one of his kids. And, um, you know, he walked into the theatre and everyone was like, Bruce. And, but he sat in the cinema with all of us with his popcorn. And, you know, and, we, and the, and the theatre was full of Asbury Park people, not really, you know, premier celebrities, <laughs> but Asbury Park people and a lot of his friends. Um, and, you know, it was, a, it was an interesting screening because... 
they kept talking over the dialogue. I wasn't happy about that. But they like every time Bruce came on, they would clap and cheer. Any music or anything, and I'd be going. Shh, this is you, important. You can't know. hear the dialogue exactly. But um, he, I heard from his manager that he loved it. He had a great night. Loved sitting in the cinema watching it with everyone. And then, and then we had a party. And then he got up on the stage and sang sang a few songs. No. It's all on my Facebook page. You can see all oh <laughs> the whole thing. So for, for me, that was really, really immense closure. Because I was able to say... You know, thank you. In fact, it was Paul, Paul, my husband here, also one of the writers of uh, of the script. There, Paul, Paul, Paul went up to Bruce and said, um, said, you know, you, 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 uh, you know, I know my wife's. He actually said, I know my wife's brilliant, but you don't know that. And thank you so much for trusting her. You know, that's so brilliant that you trusted her. And he went, hey, man, no, I knew it was going to be a good movie. From the moment I spoke to her, I knew it was going to be good. And so they, the two of them had that sort of exchange. <laughs> but, but the great thing is he trusted us. And here's the final thing, which every director in the room will love, the irony of it all. He was um, so inspired, I guess, by what I did to his songs in the movie, he's now gone and directed his own movie of Western Stars. And he just was like so impressed that he said, okay, I'm going to do this. So he's now directed a whole movie, which is going to open in, in Toronto, um, of Western Stars, where he's talking about his songs uh, on the album. That's his new album. And and the journey of some of the songs and the characters. And and it's directed by Bruce Springsteen and Thomas Zimmy. So I thought, <laughs> what goes around comes around. Seize the day. And if you put good out there, you know, it comes back. That That's all I can say about Bruce and this movie, really. That's it. <laughs> that was amazing. I Fantastic. Thank you, Catherine. So fun. Thank you, thank guys, you everyone. for coming out. Yeah, thank you, DGA. Wow, that was so... Oh, my God, that's the best story yeah, ever. I know. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 